Well, good morning. Great to see you all this morning. It was good to see many of you last night at the Christmas party. And thank you for uh, even coming back to church this morning after being out late last night. I know some of you dugged out in time to get to bed, and we appreciate that. And for those who were here last night and didn't make it this morning, well, that's why Matt asked everybody to stand so we could catch you on camera. And uh, we'll check that against the roster from last night. And... uh, Mark you down as unexcused absence this morning. It'll go on your permanent record. I'm joking about all that, of course. But uh, I uh, invite you, if you have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And uh, on the bulletin, it says through 30, it should be verse 38. Luke 1, 26 through 38. If you don't have a Bible with you, Um, There is one provided for you right in the back of the pew there in front of you, and you're welcome to use that. You'll find this passage on uh, either page 723 or 761, depending on which version of that you have. And uh, Luke 1, 26 to 38, we'll get there in just a moment. But this is the second Sunday in Advent, and it is a season of waiting. We anticipate the birth of Christ during Advent. It's a season of waiting, and as we just sung, he, he is in the waiting. We considered last week, in fact, it was, a, it was a long period of waiting for him from the time that he was, his coming was prophesied. Actually, it, it goes in some ways uh, on a certain level all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, but we were looking last week at Isaiah chapter 11, and Isaiah prophesied during a period of time, you recall, when Israel was being delivered over to the Assyrians. Um, that, that they had forgotten the Lord their God as they had been warned not to do in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And we were looking at that the week before last. They did forget him, did not keep his commandments, followed the ways of the nations around them, even worshipped other gods. And he turned them over to judgment to the Assyrians. And uh, the northern kingdom was utterly wiped out. Most of Judah was too. Jerusalem was spared for a season. But even in the wake of that destruction as as the the land was just laid bare and even forests just cut down to the stumps, he prophesied that out of the stump of Jesse, he would bring forth a shoot. That one branch would bear fruit. That branch would be the Messiah. And it was 700 years in the waiting. 700 years But then, 700 years later, approximately, an angel comes to Mary and makes a big announcement that it's time to get ready for those prophecies to actually be fulfilled. Now, let's read about that now. It's in Luke 1, chapter 26 through 38. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse... 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as always, we thank you for the privilege of assembling as your people in your presence. And we thank you that as we do, we come expecting to hear from you. So we open the scriptures at this time with that expectation, Lord, that it is your word and that it is living and that by your spirit, you can and will speak to us, your people. Lord, you know every need represented in this room today. You know where our minds and hearts are and the things that we need to hear. Um, I could not possibly speak to all of those individually even if we had time to, and even if I knew them, neither of which is true. And so we ask that you would govern over this time together. Lord, would you um, open our ears to hear, our hearts to understand what you want for us to hear and understand today. And so we ask to that end that you would speak, Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, most of us who have children remember when we first learned we were going to have a baby. And whether that was from a home pregnancy test or a doctor's appointment, it was big news, right? That was a big announcement. And uh, of course, depending on a, a variety of circumstances, that might have been um, really good big news. And under plenty of other circumstances, it might have been not so good big news. But it was big news either way. Mary's reaction was probably somewhere in between those two of it being really great news um, or really awful news. But understandably so, right? In the history of the world... There had never been, and since has never been, a birth announcement as big as this one. And to get, uh, to get out of it all that Luke offers us, we're helped to look at this from three different viewpoints because it has a historical dimension, it kind of has a theological dimension, um, and it also has a personal dimension. So we're going to look at it from like sort of through those three windows today, but the goal is um, not to just increase your chances of winning a Bible trivia quiz, um, but rather to increase, number one, our confidence in the faith, the Christian faith, 
Number two, to, to, to increase our confidence in our own personal faith. And number three, to encourage our submission to the Father. Okay, so those are the goals today. Let's don't get lost uh, in the weeds um, as we do. But let's look first of all at the fact that it is a historical announcement. And what I mean by that is that Luke is intending to report something that happened in history. He's not writing mythology here. He's reporting history. Um, in recent years, New Testament scholars have done a, a fair amount of work comparing the Gospels to ancient biography and actually have concluded that there's a lot of similarity to the way the Gospels were written and the way ancient biographies were written. Now, they're not written in the same way that modern biographies are, but, the, but in terms of um, the people who would have written those uh, accounts the, the amount of time that had passed between the death of the person and the time it was written, the length and the form and so forth, um, there's a lot of similarity. And so that many scholars have, have concluded that the Gospels are essentially ancient biography. Now, I, I haven't delved into that deeply myself, into that study. And if I had, you would not be interested in hearing about it this morning. Now, would you? If we could just be honest with one another. But the, uh, the point is that Luke and the other Gospel writers... Um, endeavor to tell us a story about a real man who lived in time and space and interacted with real people and real events. That the faith that we embrace is connected to real people and real events in history. And in fact, if we look back at verses 1 through 4 of Luke, we see this is actually a special concern of Luke's. And maybe you've read that before, but if not, let's look at that now. Beginning in verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is, of the four Gospels, this is the only one with a kind of preface like this that's addressed to a particular recipient. Now, he knows he's writing it for a broad, it'll be read by a broad audience, but it's addressed specifically to Theophilus, and he says, I'm writing this so that you may have certainty about the faith that you've heard about, that you've been taught about. Because I, Luke, um, I've, I've studied these things closely for some time. I received much of what I know from eyewitnesses who reported them, but I've made this a matter of research and it seemed good to me to write down an orderly account of the things that happened. And so the, again, the point being, he's writing history here. And he's also, Luke is also the author of the book of Acts and you find this almost to be even more true here, his, his um, concern about the details of historical facts um, are, are almost impressive in, uh, in Acts. It certainly at least makes an impression on you. But the, the record of this angelic announcement here is introduced with a few key facts that, that locate it in time and space. Let's look at that in verse 26 and 27. 
in the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with uh, a boy that would become John the Baptist. He's just given that account in the verses that preceded this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man who was named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Uh, There are specific people in a specific house in a specific town at a time in history. And I'm I'm sort of belaboring a point there, but the, the claims of Christianity are historical in nature. Now, if you've been a believer for a long time, this is like, what, what's the point here? Like that, you've believed that for a long time, but living in a skeptical world as we do, this is one of the charges leveled against um, Christianity, and if you ha- haven't encountered it, maybe you will, that it's just mythology, that somebody's just written about this made-up person named Jesus. He didn't, we're not even sure if he really existed and that sort of thing. But this is written as a careful attempt to write down what an actual man did in history. And the skeptic is welcome to say that it's bad history (laughs) or that it's inaccurate or that it's colored by Luke's biases. That's fine. And by the way, if you're a skeptic sitting here today, first of all, welcome. (laughs) We're glad that you're with us, uh, truly. And um, if if I uh, say anything that sounds uh, at all condescending I said it wrong because I promise that's actually not my uh, my purpose at all Uh, I rather respect somebody who um, asks questions and uh, wants things to make sense and it's fine of the skeptic to say that about the uh, the history that Luke or anybody else has recorded that it's not accurate history but it is history and our faith is anchored in a historical event that a real man was born to a real woman in a real house, lived a real life, died a real death, was laid in a real grave, experienced a real resurrection and saves real people like you and me even to this day. It's a historical announcement. It's also a theological announcement. And I'm not gonna linger on this one for too long, but I think we would... We would miss something really important if we didn't make the observation. But specifically, he makes a clear statement here about the virgin birth or the virgin conception would be more more accurate and the deity of Christ. Now, again, this is one of those statements. I say it's a clear statement, uh, not that everybody necessarily believes that it's true, but I'm just saying it's it's not ambiguous um, whether or not he means that Mary is a virgin here. He makes a pretty clear statement about that. And so let's look quickly at what he says here in the text, and then we'll briefly consider the implications of that before moving on. But, but Luke mentions three times um, that Mary is a virgin. Actually, three of only five, I think, mentions in the New Testament right here in this passage. So look, look back in, in 27, and then we'll jump down to 34. He says that this angel came, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now this actually strikes me as a little bit redundant to say a virgin betrothed to a man. Betrothal was essentially like engagement, although a little bit more serious. Uh, The marriage, there was every expectation that marriage was going to happen. 
But the assumption, especially in that day, would be a woman who was, especially a young woman of the age of 12 to 14 years old, which almost everybody says Mary probably was, that if she was betrothed, she was a virgin, that would be the assumption. It would, and if you follow what I'm saying there, in other words, it would be, the exception would be if she weren't. Like that would be the thing that would be worth mentioning, not that she was a virgin. But Luke takes care to mention, it's a virgin who's betrothed to Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. And then if you look down in verse 34, Mary says to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And so Matthew's gospel actually makes this same point, that, that Mary is a virgin. She will remain a virgin through her conception. Matthew in, in, in uh, 118, he says, when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child. And he goes on to say that that was a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son called Emmanuel, uh, Isaiah seven fourteen. Well, why does that matter? I mean, because, you know, this is one, again, for, for non-believers, this is one of those things that's just absurd to believe. And maybe even for new, some new believers, it's hard to believe. Like, can we wiggle our way out of that one? And why, why does it really matter? Well, uh, theologian Wayne Grudem cites three reasons that the virgin birth is important theologically. Uh, number one, it shows salvation must ultimately come from the Lord. That this couldn't be contrived by human efforts. God acted and brought about a savior. Number two, it made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. Again, this is one of those, like if you were reading a theology book and you get to the full deity and the full humanity of Christ, I mean, some people are going, why does that really matter? I'll tell you in just a second. The third, it said that the uniting of the full deity and full humanity in one person. Three, it made possible Christ's true humanity yet without inherited sin. So every human being descended from Adam is born in sin by having been born of a woman, he's a man like other men, but having been born of God, he's a man like no other man. Human and yet without inherited sin. But to bring that home to us, I've, I've used this phrase before, but this, this one who was fully God and fully man, on the cross, that God-man bared a penalty, paid a penalty, that only man deserved to pay, but that only God was able to pay. He, he paid a penalty that only man deserved to pay, but that only God was able to pay. In other words, being fully God, being fully man, qualified him, if you will, to be our savior. That's the significance of the virgin birth. And Luke is not being ambiguous about it at all. Again, making it quite clear uh, Mary was a virgin and the conception was of the Holy Spirit. It's a, not only historical, but a theological announcement. Now we'll move on to it's a, a personal announcement. And this maybe can uh, strike, maybe this moves it from head to heart a little bit more. It's a, the Bible actually tells us very little about Mary, but in this short passage, we see a beautiful picture of God reaching down to humanity 
in the way that he interacts with Mary and in the way that he uses her. And, and even though it is enormously important theologically, it has this really personal human dimension to it. And we learn some important things about Mary that are helpful to us in our own walk with God. Because we see something of ourselves there, but it also helps us see something of the nature of God. But first of all, Mary is lowly. This is really kind of implied in the text rather than stated right out front, but she's a, she's a very young woman from a forgettable town in an unrespectable region. Uh, Nazareth is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. And you'll probably recall that when, when Jesus first began his ministry and he goes out and starts calling disciples to himself, Philip goes and tells Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's question? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's an honest question. Like he's asking a real question. So this is, this is kind of what people think of Nazareth. And, uh, you know, I was thinking of this, I was trying to think of a comparison this morning um, of, of the, the place Nazareth would have in the minds of people, especially in a faith that's centered in Jerusalem, uh, which would have been further south. And that's kind of the religious capital. This is a happening place, you know. But uh, how many of y'all know where um, the town of Dublin, North Carolina is? Okay, we got a, a fair number. It's not far away, actually. It's only, I don't know, maybe half, people, half of the people in here know uh, and half of you don't, which kind of makes the point that I'm trying to make. I mean, it's 45 minutes up the road or something like this or, or, or maybe an hour. I don't know. Maybe it's farther than that. There's like, I, I, I looked it up and I think there are 368 people that live in the town of Dublin. And by the way, it's on Highway 87 going up to Fayetteville. But, you know, so you can, you can live this close to Dublin and not even know Dublin exists. Shame on you, by the way. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. But uh, on behalf of the residents of Dublin, let me express my disgust. But, um, but so th- this, is, this is Nazareth. I mean, it's that kind of town. Like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Galilee actually doesn't, isn't really held in much higher esteem. John 7.52 expresses what's probably the prevailing opinion of the day, and that is that a prophet can't come from Galilee. Like this was the reaction to Jesus. Can any prophet come from Galilee? The assumption was no. And it, it sort of seems, as I read the New Testament, I get the, the sense that the, the term Galilean was even used in a slightly derogatory way. It's not really explicit um, in that way, but it's almost like um, somebody from Galilee, like it needs to be qualified, he's a Galilean. So in other words, that you understand what his place is, you know, what his status is. Yeah, you know, Peter the Galilean or something like that. It's, it, the, the term it seems as it's almost used in that way. But, but regardless of that, nobody from Nazareth would have been a member of the country club. Okay, their application would, would be immediately filed away. Most people would have found it uh, unimaginable that a young woman from Nazareth would be chosen by God to birth and raise the Messiah. But she was. Consider that fact for a minute. This young peasant girl 
from a nowhere town of no reputation at all is chosen by God to carry, deliver, nurse, change the diapers of the most important man that ever lived on the face of the earth. She's a lowly woman and it's a reminder to us that God uses the humble and lowly. I'm wondering if there's anybody else here besides me that wasn't born with a silver spoon in your mouth. Yeah? Anybody, you know, born with a, like a plastic spork in your mouth, right? Because, yeah, because you couldn't, couldn't even afford, no, we can't even afford both the, the spoon and the fork, right? So, this, God has always worked this way. And it's, it maybe became more like evident or prominent in the New Testament. It's always been that way. Um, and we see it throughout the New Testament. Let me remind you of some examples where God, instead of choosing the firstborn son, the firstborn who would have been the most honored by just position in the family, who would have been due the greater inheritance and that kind of thing, would be the natural choice to choose for some honored position or whatever. That God chose the younger and sometimes the youngest son in Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon. And there were others too. But those are men who make the A-list, right? None of them firstborn sons. David was not only the youngest, he was a shepherd boy. Not really king material, right? But this is the way... God works constantly, and he says repeatedly in the Bible that he blesses humility. Let me just share a few verses uh, quickly on that. Psalm 1827 says, for you save a humble people. Psalm 147.6, the Lord lifts up the humble. Psalm 149.4, for the Lord adorns the humble with salvation. Proverbs 3.34, to the humble he gives favor. Isaiah 66.2, but this is the one to whom... I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And even in the New Testament, there are some uh, several references to the same thing, like in James 4 and 1 Peter 5, where it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is how God delights to operate. And friend, if you are um, if you are of lowly status, low income, and so forth, that's your background. Um, again, you are in the right place when you are in the presence of Jesus because that is the material he loves to work with. Now, maybe there might even be some here today who have avoided you know, most of your life. You've stayed away from church because it's full of church people. Right, and they, um, and they seem a little more sophisticated than that and all put together and that sort of thing and make you feel um, like maybe you're not all that. Well, first of all, they're not all that either. I tell that on them, you know, periodically just so let's just keep the truth out there in front of people. They're not all put together. They dress up like that on Sunday. <laughs> Me too, by the way. But, um, but even if that were true, God delights to use the lowly in accomplishing his purposes. And Mary was a lowly and humble woman. She was entirely unqualified. And that's what qualified her to be used mightily of God. She was also favored 
by God. Look at verses 28 through 30 again. Uh, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He says this in three different ways. He calls her, O favored one, says the Lord is with you, and you have found favor with God. And he goes on to suggest she was favored because of how God was going to use her, not because of anything in her or that she had done. The angel doesn't cite anything about Mary that merited favor. Even though she was lowly and humble and so forth, they didn't, that wasn't the reason why she was favored. She was favored in that what and how God was going to use her. As I said, she'll birth and raise the most important man who ever lived. But let's consider the other side of this and at what cost she will live in the favor of God. Because uh, Gabriel tells her the most important thing, and that is you'll give uh, birth to a son. He will be um, called son of the most high. He will be holy, son of God, and this kind of things. He'll sit on the throne of David. He tells her, tells her the things that are most important, but he does not tell her everything. He doesn't say, Mary, you have found favor with God and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive a son and your husband will be suspicious of you and he'll want to divorce you until an angel goes and tells him it's legit. Mary, you have found favor with God and the Holy Spirit will come on you and you will conceive a son and there will be people in your life who will never believe you and will always think you're lying about it. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive a son. And men and women will whisper about you when you walk down the street, look at you a little differently. They'll put you on the prayer list at church so they can gossip about you openly and sanctimoniously. He doesn't say, Another set of things. Mary, you have found favor with God and you will bear a son and he will be great, so great that King Herod will want to kill him. And you and your young family will have to flee for your lives to Egypt for a season of time. Mary, you have found favor with God and you will bear a son and he will be great. And he will say things so radical that even you might think he's gone crazy. Mary, you have found favor with God and you will bear a son and he will be great and you will watch him suffer the most heinous execution imaginable. Gabriel didn't say all of that. It's not as if he's withholding information in order to close the deal here, okay? Because it's not conditioned. He didn't say here, um, Mary, your mission, if you should choose to accept it, is to conceive and bear a son. He says, Mary, you will conceive and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus and he will be these kind of things. That's certain. He's not withholding information here. Um, He's given her and us 
perspective. What matters is she has God's favor because she is going to be used in the, in the greatest way imaginable a woman could be used. I really can't think. I cannot think of a higher purpose to serve in one's life than to give birth to the Savior of the world. And it's why she's called blessed among women uh, in the later passage that, that follows this one in Luke. But it, 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 it reminds us of two things. That having the favor of God does not necessarily mean having the favor of men. You know, God said to Abraham when he called him out of Ur and said, go, I will give you a, I will give you a land, I will make you a people and all this kind of stuff that's going to come. But he says, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And so that continues for the people of God, uh, so much so that the better measure of whether or not we have God's favor is whether other people are blessed, not whether we appear to be. You tracking there? That we, if we have the favor of God, other people somehow through us are experiencing that, we may experience a great deal of disfavor from other people. You know, it's possible that for you, living openly as a Christian means being cut out of a will. It could be that, that much disfavor for some people. Uh, being uninvited to the family gatherings or being invited knowing you're going to be the one mocked and jeered at and scorned and so forth. You could be the one squeezed out of the partnership in, in business, um, treated differently by authorities in any number of different kind of ways, and the list goes on and on. Having the favor of God does not guarantee that you're going to have the favor of men, and, and Mary's experience is a powerful reminder of that. But it also means having the favor of God doesn't necessarily mean we're going to enjoy personal security and comfort. Just as in Mary's case, Jesus lived in her home. We don't have, the, 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 first, um, the first result of that, uh, really, that we're, we're, we're told about is having to flee to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill him. And we're not told that beyond that there's anything other than an inglorious life uh, in a carpenter's home in a, in a little nothing town called Nazareth. Um, there's nothing especially secure and comfortable about the life that she lives or that she'll watch Jesus live. But, but walking in God's favor uh, is so much more treasured than approval of men or comfort and security. Are you there today? As we conclude, we, we do want to notice Mary's response to this news because she has very little to say in this encounter. But if you were tracking, you would notice that she goes from greatly troubled in verse 29 to inquisitive, so, so greatly troubled and like trying to discern what this announcement is about. Inquisitive in verse uh, 34, asking how will this be? Uh, 
since I'm a virgin, to surrendered in verse 38. Let's look at that as we wind up. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If you think about that statement from a young girl, 12 to 14 years old, that's humbling. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Can you say that this morning, beloved? May I have favor with God, even if it earns me disfavor with men, even if it earns me discomfort and hardship. Lord, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we do thank you that we have experienced your favor for those who believe in Jesus belong to you through our faith in him Lord that we have experienced your favor in the greatest way possible Um, Lord that you have set your love upon us forgiven us of our sins you've reconciled us to yourself and you've given us life everlasting We acknowledge that that may come at some cost to us, not only knowing your favor as a believer, but walking openly with you in a world that is increasingly skeptical and maybe even increasingly hostile toward the things of God, toward the Christian faith and those who profess it. Uh, Lord, that in that world, it may earn us more and more disfavor, disapproval, discomfort, difficulty. But Lord, would you so overwhelm us with the beauty of just who you are that our um, insatiable desire is to have your favor, no matter what the cost to us. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony that the scriptures provide us in that regard, the example of Mary and the, and the way that you worked in the life of a woman like her. Would you do so um, even in our day, even in our lives? Lord, I pray especially for those here today who haven't, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they have uh, sort of walked around the periphery of church life for some time as sort of an observer, or maybe even they've been in and out of church um, in their their years growing up. But Lord, I I pray that as only you can do, Lord, as, as, as an act of your sovereign grace, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself to experience the beauty of what we're testifying about today and make this a Christmas that will um, be unforgettable because of what you've done in their lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.